We're in uh, part two of our three-part mini-series on speaking truth to power. We have completed all the way through Acts chapter 24, all the way to the end of chapter 24. And last week, we saw that Paul, who God said would stand before kings, spoke the truth to Governor Felix. Today, we'll look at Paul and Governor Festus. Although King Agrippa shows up in this chapter, he also appears in Acts 25, we'll, we'll focus this week really on what Festus represents, and next week we'll consider Paul before Agrippa when we look at Acts chapter 26. So this morning we are in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 27, the whole chapter, speaking truth to power part 2, Paul before Festus. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. So Paul has been imprisoned in Caesarea for about two years. He was left there by Felix, but after his term or when, Paul, when Felix was removed, Festus has now been appointed as the new governor and he comes to the Jewish leaders or he comes to Jerusalem. They requested, they, the, the Jewish leaders requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, not because they wanted to see him and greet him and, you know, see how he was doing. No, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So after two years, the Jewish leaders are still seeking to kill Paul. Clearly, they see him as a threat. They see him as somebody who is doing something that is blaspheming God, or affecting their position, or doing these things. And so they're still seeking after two years to try to kill Paul. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now Paul is very aware that they are trying to ambush or laying an ambush or that their, they, their attitude towards him has not changed. They're still seeking to kill him. So that's how he takes this particular uh, path or, or makes this statement. So Festus replies, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. 
He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Now, unlike Governor Felix, who the Bible says was well acquainted with the way. He understood who Jesus was. He understood about Christianity. He understood what was happening around him in terms of the early church. Felix knew what Paul was saying when he talked about Jesus. And that's why we talked about it last week, that he is convicted as he hears this message about righteousness and judgment and so on. But here, unlike Felix, it seems that Festus is not fully aware of Jesus or the accounts of his resurrection or the growth of the church and Christianity. He doesn't seem to know about it, right? He responds in a very different way to Paul's message. Festus is more focused on due process and following protocol for the sake of preserving his position and power. That's what he's focused on. He's not looking to rock the boat. And as much as he knows that Paul is innocent of the charges brought against him, he says, I, I, I don't think there's anything, any merit to these charges. I don't think he's deserving of death or even imprisonment. Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. And so like Pilate did with Jesus, Festus wants to please the Jews and not have anything to do with Paul. So what does he do? He washes his hands off Paul and gladly agrees to send him to Caesar. All he's doing right now is saying, I need to send a note with him. 
I need to know what to write in this note. What should I write in this thing? I mean, what do I say? What is the charge against him? And so that's why he's even willing to listen to Paul, and he has Agrippa there as a second source who can say, okay, let's, let's say this. This is the charge against him. Now, following his interactions with Paul, the key point that Festus makes to Agrippa is that Paul claims that a dead man named Jesus is alive. So Festus has come to a point of view or he's listened to all this stuff and he says, Jesus, okay, Jesus is dead, but this Paul is claiming that Jesus is, in, is alive. So in other words, Festus's ignorance and lack of understanding about Jesus keep him from believing the truths that Paul is stating. Keep him from believing the truth of God. Which means that as we consider, as we continue to consider how to speak truth to those in power, we need to remember that many in positions of power are ignorant of the truths of God. Last week we saw Felix and he was aware of the truths of God. This week we're looking at Festus and he is ignorant of the truths of God. Now, there are many reasons for why people around the world don't know about Jesus. They don't know about Jesus, they don't know about the true and living God, Yahweh, they don't know about the word of God, they don't know about the family of God, the children of God, they don't know about the church, the body of Christ, they don't know any of these things. And there are many reasons for that. Some have never heard. Some have never heard about these things. Or what they have heard is incomplete or incorrect. It just, you know, whatever little bit they have heard is just painting a very wrong picture for them. Right? They, they hear some bits and pieces or something and they have a very wrong idea of what Christianity is, who Jesus was and so on. Or they've been told something about Jesus, about the church, that is just not true. And so that's what they have heard. Now, in uh, previous weeks, we have considered some of these points about what people may or may not have heard or how they think about things and so on. And we have said, we want to pray for the Lord to make himself known to them, to these folks that do not know Jesus. We want to pray that God would make himself known to them. And in, there are multiple instances and testimonies from all over the world where people have come to know Jesus in unexpected ways. Right? direct interventions of the Lord. We also said that we want to be willing ourselves, we want to be prepared, we want to be equipped to go and tell others. To those that do not know, we want to go and be able to tell them about Jesus. We want to be willing to do that. We want to obey what the Lord has told us to go and tell others about. So we are thinking of ourselves in those ways. So there's what the Lord would do, and there's what the Lord would do through us as we go to these folks. Ultimately, for all these folks that do not know, that have never heard, or that uh, they, don't know, they don't know because they haven't heard in full, or they haven't heard the gospel message in its uh, completeness, what we ultimately trust and believe is that the Lord will deal with them in the right way, with fairness, with justice, with compassion, with mercy. And so we trust the Lord. Right? Now, there is a second group of people, and 
you've heard this expression, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. The idea is that if you don't know about something, then you don't have to worry about it. Right? It, it's not that it's not happening. It's just that, oh, I, hey, I, I don't know anything about it, so I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to worry about it. Ignorance is bliss, right? And it's, it's not that you don't need to know about anything at all. It's just that about something, about, about anything that may affect you adversely or that you know that if I start thinking about this, I'm going to become anxious or I'm going to become fearful and I may be wondering, oh, what, what will happen? Right? So those kind of things, and it's just going to you know, add stress to my life. So ignorance would be a way of avoiding this stress. And so there are people all around you who will say, I don't want to know, or I don't want to worry about eternity and about God, and I just want to have some fun now. I don't want to hear all this depressing stuff about sin and judgment and you know, all these kinds of things. I would rather be ignorant about it, right? And by the way, ironically, it's not only those who don't want to know about Jesus who are blissfully ignorant of the truth. Many in the church also are ignorant of who God really is and what he requires of us. Because if you start really paying attention to the word of God and start really paying attention to what he says about suffering and about persecution and about righteousness and about holiness and about how we should live and how we should guard our tongues and how we should love others and how we should parent and how we should you know, conduct our marriages. And if we, if we really paid attention to all of that, we'd say, oh, this is all like stress inducing, you know. So I'd rather just be ignorant about these things That's because ignorance is bliss. And I can claim ignorance, right? I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, this person is complaining about my behavior. I didn't know. I didn't know that this is what you're supposed to do. And I'm really not wanting to know because if I, because if I know about it, then I have to do it. So, I know. so ignorance is bliss for many. Another reason for why people remain ignorant of the truth is because of what they already have. They have power, they have position, they have riches, they have all sorts of things. Or they may think that they know the truth. They already have something. They have something that they're saying, I'm holding on to this. This is what I know, and I'm not going to change. This is what I have. And so because of that, because that they think that there's nothing more to be gained, there's nothing to be gained from knowing God. There's nothing to be gained from knowing his children as such, or those that claim to be the children of God. There's nothing to be gained from it. So they say, I don't need to know about this. I can be ignorant about it. I don't need to learn about it because there's nothing, there's, there's no need that I, have, uh, that I have that's going to be met through this God or through these Christians. Right? And then, Last week, as we saw last week, there are some rich and powerful people, and just people in general, who prefer to remain ignorant of God because they think that knowing God would mean having to follow and obey God, and following and obeying God would mean that they have to give up their riches and their power. All right? Felix was afraid, not just because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but he's thinking, oh, I would have to give up all of this. And so he does not make that decision. 
He does not go to Jesus. He does not believe. And so we've seen all of these things. So there are all sorts of categories of people. You could come up with other categories of why people do not want to receive the truth of God. So how do we then, as children of God, as ambassadors of Christ, speak truth to those who are ignorant of the truths of God, and particularly those who are in positions of power, where they can more readily choose to ignore or dismiss the truths of God. They are living their lives in such a way that they can, they can ignore the truth of God and still go on with their lives. In fact, the Bible says that they prosper as far as their lives on the earth are concerned. So how do we speak to these folks? What should we do? How do we deal with that? Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth, and we've seen some references already about the connections there and why he does that and what and how he speaks and so on. But listen to what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 onwards. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and this, it's written in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What is Paul saying? There is a wisdom of God that seems like foolishness to those who are ignorant about God and his word. Those who are looking for wisdom everywhere else other than in God, they find the message of the cross, Jesus dying so that the power of sin over us is removed. They find the message of the cross and the message of the resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead so that the power of death over us is removed. They find these things to be illogical, foolish, insane. How could an educated, rational, wise person ever believe such nonsense? Which brings us to this point. Regardless of whether we will be heard or understood, we must know the reasons for why we believe and be prepared to share them. We have to be prepared to answer the questions that people raise, regardless of whether they're doing it to counter what you're saying or to mock you or to just oppose you or to say, oh, this, is, this is hogwash, or to say to you, you're insane. That's what Festus says to Paul in the next chapter. We'll see that. But you know, regardless of what the possible 
response to you would be, we must know the reasons for why we believe and be prepared to share those reasons with others. All right? Now, there are many questions. There are many questions that people raise about God and God's truths. Some of them, they're asking sincerely, genuinely. They want to know. They're asking and they're seeking the truth. And so you can answer in, you know, with that in mind. Some are not asking because they're seeking the truth, but just to try to, you know, to oppose you. And so there are some standard questions that people will ask, and then there are some variants of those questions that come up so often that it behooves us to be prepared to answer those questions. That we should say, okay, these are the kind of questions that people are asking. What should I know about them? How should I respond? What should I say? When there is ignorance that for whatever reason, whatever category that person may be in, that they are ignorant of the truth of God, but there is some opportunity to speak to them. They are asking a question, or there is some opportunity for a discussion. What should I say, and how can I be prepared? Because there are some standard things that they will ask. And in general, those standard questions are about evil in the world. How could a good God allow evil in the world? Right? This is one of the standard kind of questions that people will ask. The next thing is about evolution and creation. Right? They'll come up with all sorts of questions related to that topic. Then they will ask or they may, they may have doubts about the reliability and the accuracy of scripture. Then there could be questions about sin, morality, and salvation. Just even agreement, disagreement about what sin is, people define that differently, or may not even have a concept of sin. Morality, meaning the idea that you live ethically or morally with or without God, people have all sorts of ideas about that. And about salvation, meaning how are you actually rescued, even if you do believe in some sin or possibility of sin, how are you rescued from that? How are you saved from some, you know, destruction. How are you saved from a potential judgment of God? So people have questions or thoughts about these topics. Then, so, so evil in the world, evolution and creation, reliability and accuracy of scriptures, sin, morality, and salvation. And then people have questions about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And when they ask about the life of Jesus, they're also asking about his claims. Well, did Jesus really say this? Did Jesus really do that? Or, what did Jesus mean when he said this? Or, how come Jesus didn't say this? Right? And so they will ask questions about that. And then they will ask questions about Jesus' death. And they will ask questions about Jesus' resurrection. This is exactly what Festus does here. I mean, that's the primary thing he seems to be going after. He's like, how is this, why is Paul even talking about this? Dead man and he claims he's alive. Right? People will ask these kind of questions. They will come up with these things. And then the, the, the final category that I'm telling you about is this idea that people will ask about final judgment or, with, or about eternity with or without God. Right? They don't talk maybe primarily in terms of heaven and hell. They won't talk about salvation and Jesus and so on. But there is an, a concept for almost anybody in the world where they're really concerned about what happens when they die. What happens? Some people, of course, say, well, that's it, I'm, I'm snuffed out and I'm done. But, but there are many who's, who believe that there's something. There's something after they die, right? And so the question for them to, that they raise with you is, okay, tell me what that is. 
Explain that to me. So you understand that these are the general sort of categories and questions that people raise. When they are ignorant about God and his truths, they will raise questions in these areas. So I want to ask each of you. And by the way, there are many other topics. There are many other things that could come up. right? But these are some of the main things. So I want to ask you, each one of you here, and anybody who would say, hey, I'm a part of New Life Fellowship Church, what do you know about these topics? Each one of these topics. Have you studied them out? And if you have started to seek the wisdom of God about these topics, have you learned how to present God's truths about these topics in a clear and logical way? Have you spent time doing that? Because these are the questions that are coming up. So what I want to do, and, and you know, over time in the, in the very life of our church, we will address at least partly many of these questions during a sermon or during a Q&A session or during a sermon discussion or during some other opportunity or just conversation, just fellowship as people interact. Some of these questions are going to get addressed. Some of these questions will be raised. Even last week, I was speaking to somebody here who was saying, you know, she was, she was talking about somebody that she knew about that had, was in the church and had done something vile. I mean, just terrible behavior. And she, and she, and she was so affected. And she said, you know, how could somebody do this? How can they be so evil? Right? How could somebody who's in the church do something like this? And if we haven't grappled with that question. If we are not prepared to answer these kinds of things that people raise, we can't have the conversations. So I encourage you, I want to challenge you that as we go through these, as we go through the life of the church uh, and we address some of these questions, I want to encourage you to systematically study these topics. Raise the questions, discern and attend to biblically sound teaching. You have different sources, but go after these things and say, what is the way in which I can understand more about this topic and about this truth? How should I understand it? And as the Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord. Ask the Lord and say, God, I need wisdom. I need wisdom to know what to say about this particular topic. How should I address this? If somebody raises this, my neighbor is asking me, my colleague at work is asking me, my child is asking me, what should I say? How do I address this? And so, we want to systematically, diligently, with great discernment, with, with asking the Lord for wisdom, go after these things. Right? Now, you can never personally know everything that there is to know about any of these topics. You just won't be able to do it. You can't exhaustively know everything about these topics. And some of these things we cannot determine. There are some things about these questions or about these, the, the, trying to come up with an answer for it that we say, I, you know, actually I don't know. I'm not sure how to even determine this part of the answer. But I know the general, you know, the general truth that applies. I know what God has, God's word is saying about this in this way. I know how it applies. I know how, you know, in my life, I can point to that. But I can't give you the specific answer to this specific point. So that may, be hap that may happen. But in the middle of all of that, even if we think that we know the truth, we must remember 
that we cannot convince somebody else by our power of persuasion. So when I say this to you to say, learn these things, understand these things, you know, go after this Christian apologetics, right? That you would understand this, that you would learn, that you would be prepared, that, and the Lord charges us to learn, to know, to be prepared, and so on. When I tell you to be prepared, I'm not saying to you that means that you can then just answer any question. You'll be well, well, well prepared. You know, you just keep coming to our church and you'll be able to answer any skeptic of the gospel message. That's not what I'm saying, right? All I'm saying is that we make that commitment to say, Lord, you prepare me and you do this work in me. Fill me with your wisdom. Let me learn. Let me study. Let me be a lifelong student of your word. Let me never at any point say, ah, I know what to do. I know, I know all about this. Right? And let me always be willing to be corrected. I may have come up with something myself, or I may have been influenced from the outside, or I may have sat under some teaching or whatever else, or I may be watching a YouTube video, and I've come up with some particular thing. And I've said, this is it. Lord, let me be willing to be corrected. Let me be willing to be set right in you. But you do this, Lord. Now, as we're preparing in that way, I want you to go over to 1 Peter 3.15. Actually, you don't have to go there. Just let me read this verse. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you questions about creation. No, it doesn't say that. Who asks you questions about marriage. Who asks you questions about your job? Who asks you questions about evil? Who asks you questions about why the church does what it does? No, the verse doesn't say any of that. The verse says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So as much as I encourage you to study, to prepare, to know these things and to to apply them regularly in every way that the Holy Spirit would lead you, I want you to notice that 1 Peter 3.15 doesn't say that you have to have the answers to all these questions that someone could raise. Instead, it says that you have to be prepared to explain the hope that you have. Why do you have hope? We share our stories of personal transformation. And that becomes much more critical, much more useful, much more powerful than whether you know the answers to all these questions. And so when we share with people our hope in God, we're sharing about a hope that is well grounded in reality and in the, and in the, in the foundational truths. We're not just making something up. We're saying, hey, I have a hope because... And then when we share about our hope in God, we're speaking about a hope that is well-informed. We're not saying, oh, I have a hope in God, or I believe that in the sweet by and by, when Jesus returns, I'll be gathered on the, on the, on the distant shore. You know, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not just singing a song. I'm not, it's not just because my parents told me. It's not because I grew up with that in church. No, I'm well-informed. I've studied the scriptures. I've prayed. I've sought the Lord. I'm looking at these things regularly. And I have a hope that is founded firm. So when I share with somebody about the hope that I have, even without having to explain all the reasons you know, and all the answers, I can say, I have this hope because. And when we share like that, 
That prompts the people who we're sharing with to say, why do you hope in God and in the promises of God? Why do you eagerly and patiently anticipate their timely fulfillment? Why is it that when things seem hopeless, you are not anxious? Our hope is manifest to the people. And we've talked about this in other weeks too. And when Paul stood before Felix and Festus, and Agrippa, he certainly had the knowledge and the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. He knew, I mean, he, had, he was well equipped to answer these kind of questions and to talk about, to defend himself, to do things. But the important message that Paul conveyed to those in power was of the hope that he had in God. And because he's communicating that in a consistent manner, in the manner in, in, in a, such a way that he lives this out, and we're going to get into this more next week when we talk about how Paul speaks to Agrippa, but because he does this, it's not just about what comes out of his mouth that's coming from his head, it's what's expressed in his life that's coming out of his heart, and his hands, his actions demonstrate what's in the heart. And he's speaking in such a way, he's doing these things in such a way that when he speaks about his faith, his hope, and he does that in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the people that he's speaking to, they are compelled to interact with him, to listen to him, to pay attention. That's the power that the Lord is calling us to. That's the commitment that he's making or that he's saying that we have to make. We're not talking about saying, oh, I have all the answers. We're saying, I have a hope in God. And because I have a hope in God, I can talk to you. I can tell you. I can respond to you. So, when we respond like that to people, it also brings up the question of how we respond and apply what we're hearing this morning. And when we hear a word like this, I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you that you respond and you apply by sharing the wisdom and hope that you have. Right? Be prepared. Be equipped. Be willing to share the wisdom and the hope that you have. What do you know? Is it this much? Share that. Is it a whole lot more? Share that. Live up to what you have already attained. But whatever you have attained, in the wisdom of God, in the hope of God, knowing that this is what the Lord has called you to and what he, has, what he is opening up before you. This is what you're anticipating and paying attention to for the future. If that is the hope that you have, then be willing to share that. Be committed to share that. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have an advanced degree. You don't have to have gone through some program, nothing. You simply have to be able to share the wisdom and the hope that you have. And when we do that, you know, last week we were talking about it and we said we have to depend on the Holy Spirit to speak the truth to power. We can't do this in our strength. We can't do this because of our powers of persuasion. We can't do this because we have the stage, you know. We can't, we can't do any of that. We have to say, oh God, I rely on and I need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit 
to anoint me. I need your Holy Spirit to fill me. I need your Holy Spirit to speak through me. And I need your Holy Spirit to speak words that will convict the hearer of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. I need your Holy Spirit to be working in and through me, to be doing that. But this week, as we're looking at this, we're saying, in addition to the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit, we also have to be filled with the wisdom and the hope of God. So it's not, you know, sometimes we, we sort of take the lazy way out. We say, oh God, I'm a child of God, I'm filled with your spirit, I thank you that you'll do this. But ah, you know, studying the scripture, spending time in this, learning these things, ah, let somebody else do that, right? I'll just rely on you to speak through me whenever the need, there, need arises. But I want to encourage us that we would be committed to saying and pursuing this particular point. Lord, fill me with wisdom. Fill me with knowledge of the Most High. Fill me with the truth of your word. Let me have that deep inside me so that when I speak, it'll come out. It'll just overflow out of me. And let me be filled with hope. Let me know you in such an intimate way and let me be eagerly anticipating all that you would do and all that you, are pro that you have promised with such strength, with such conviction, with such, with such certainty that when I speak to people, that's what will be evident. It's not wishful thinking. It's a hope of God that transcends all the things of this world. And then we do that. When we speak to people in that way, I'm confident that the Lord who has promised, who has said that he is faithful, we sang about it today too, God has been faithful to us all our years, all our time, and he continues to do his work. When we do what the Lord is calling us to do, to say, you simply share the wisdom and the hope that you have, and I will bring you to where you, know, you need to be. You will stand before kings. That's, that, that's not the focus. It's not, oh God, I want to stand before kings. It's, God, you prepare me to, to simply share your wisdom and your hope. And when you bring me before kings, oh God, thank you, that you will do your work. That he will touch the hearts of the hearers. So here, this is our challenge. This is our opportunity. This is what we want to go after. Week after week, after month after month, after year after year, we want to say, Lord God, you prepare us, you equip us, you build us up. And so that if anyone comes, we are praying for those to be joined to the church. It's not just for those that are in some other church right now and would come here. No, that, we want to pray for people who don't know, who are ignorant of the things of God, of the truths of God, for whatever reason. And we want to say, oh God, help us to speak truth to power. Help us to speak truth to those that may be ignorant of your ways. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. And Lord, your word is so wonderfully rich for us and gives us such wonderful examples. We thank you, Lord, for Paul as he stood before Festus. Lord, Festus was ignorant of who you were. But I thank you that in all his interactions, Paul, without compromise, without hesitation, would continue to have spoken, would have spoken of the wisdom of God, the truth of God, why, why he can so confidently assert that Jesus is alive. And Lord, thank you that he would have spoken of the hope that he had. Thank you that he did speak of the hope that he had. Thank you, Lord, that these truths, these examples, present a wonderful encouragement for us 
to do the same. That, Lord, we would diligently learn your word. We would diligently seek out the scriptures. That we would, Lord, diligently understand what there is to learn about these topics and how to speak to others in a kind and loving way. In a, Lord, in a rational and clear way. How to communicate effectively. We pray that you would prepare us to do that. Lord, whether it's in just writing or speaking or putting, on a, putting a video up or whatever it may be. Help us, Lord, to communicate the wisdom and the hope of God. And as we do that, as we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, I thank you, Lord, that we are not concerned about the results or the outcomes. All that is in your hands. We simply want to be faithful and obedient. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we can speak truth to anyone, and especially those in power. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.